0: T.C. Hale is not a doctor and does not claim to be a doctor or licensed in any type of medical field. Don't be an idiot and use anything heard on the show as medical advice. This information should be used for educational purposes only and you should contact your doctor for any medical advice. Now get off me. Welcome to Kick It Naturally. I'm Kenna McEnroe and I'm here with T.C. Hale, author, natural health expert, producer... My boss
1: and dressed up. We all wore yeah, tuxedos today yeah. for the special occasion. Even
0: me, I wore a tuxedo. Uh huh. We just wanted to
1: see what that would look like. Yeah, it's, Weird. it's
0: pretty. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. uh, and that to my left is uh, Hottie Patati Will Schmidt, fitness trainer to the stars, extraordinaire.
2: I, I even comb my hair with my right, hands, it looks and that's good. different. That's <laughs> really good.
0: Will looks really cute today, but he's he's not showing as much skin, which mm. makes me sad. It
1: makes kind of disappointed.
0: Uh huh. Well, today, if you haven't joined us yet today is the day to do it. Go to Facebook to kick it in the nuts. Uh, like us there and that's where we're going to post all our future show topics that we're going to be doing and you guys can ask questions. You can even ask us for certain show topics because we're running out.
1: We ran out actually. so today we're bringing on a guest and we've never really done oh, that yeah. other than Hadi Patati will Schmidt um so we're really excited Will's about not it not
0: even a guest anymore he's no. just, yeah. here. He's just I hope he didn't leave he was one of those guests that came and <laughs> like never left like
1: a paperweight uh-huh. yeah. so you know a lot of problems can be improved in more than one way so we want to start bringing in viewpoints from other people so that the listeners can learn other ways to fix things but also it kind of allows us to learn more in the process too and i think as we do this I, I guarantee at some point we're going to have an idiot on the show. I, as we start to have guests, somebody's going to be an idiot for sure. Other than us. Yeah, yeah than I not.
0: was about to say, I'm already the idiot. So. But today well,
1: more? today is not the idiot day because uh, Dr. Michael Ruscio is completely awesome. He is... Uh, He's he looks like, kind of
0: cute too yeah, from his he's, pictures. He's pretty. Yeah.
1: He's pretty, and uh, he's like a, a a gut microbiota ninja. Like when it comes to gut infections and all that stuff, he is the captain of all of that. And uh, he's on Rob Wolf's show all the time, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that when we bring him on. So let's let's introduce him a little bit. And Can we I? are
0: talking about gut infections and SIBO, uh, so that's cool. It's
1: good. It's mm-hmm. that's handy that that's, that's it's, the it's, topic it's, when yeah. we have him on. It's, what good a coincidence. coincidence.
0: So Dr. Ruscio specializes in functional medicine. He works to find the cause of the ailments. In addition to being in private practice, Dr. Ruscio also researches and lectures nationally to doctors and students. He's also currently writing a book on hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, and digestive disorders. Dr. Ruscio is a leader in the movement to focus on treating the cause of the disease rather than medicating symptoms. We like that.
1: Dr. Michael Ruscio, are you with us? I'm here, guys. Can you oh. hear me? Okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. We can hear you. you thought you bailed. I, I know that I mentioned before that we were going to have you on the show, but I didn't mention that we're going to actually, actually let you talk. We're going to let you say stuff.
3: Oh, great! Because yeah. I, I I actually dressed up in a tuxedo also today. Oh, <laughs> nice. So, this is a black talk. tie.
1: This is a black yeah. tie affair. And what's fun about having a guest is that we know at least one other person is going to listen to the show. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I just know. brought up our viewership by yeah. uh, like fifty percent. Yeah, fifty yeah. percent increase on one shot. So. Um, for those that don't know uh, Dr. Michael Ruscio, you're you're silly. You you really should. And today's an exciting day for you. Um, I met uh, Dr. Ruscio through Rob Wolf. He's he's a regular on uh, Rob Wolf's podcast, and he's a you know D- Dr. Ruscio is a big name in, in the Paleo community, and uh, he does some really great work. And when I talk to him, sometimes my brain melts a little bit, but I always learn some stuff, and that's exciting.
3: <laughs> yeah, we don't want the brain to melt too much
1: right and uh he, he also has a, a brand new podcast that's come out and it's doing great and it's really great uh definitely check it out um he He's already covered topics like uh hyperthyroidism and graves disease and um, gut Microbiota. He's, he's had guests like Rob Wolf and Tony Hale. He said Tony Hale oh, on his gosh. show, wow. Wow. which the is one and only That was his only mistake
0: <laughs> the, in life. The, the, the actor on right? not here. Yeah, yeah the, the, the real actor. Arrested <laughs> Development yeah. actor. He yeah. was on the show. He,
1: he had a stomachache, <laughs> right. and so he wanted to talk to, to Ruscio about that. So how's the show going? What other kind of topics have you covered so far?
3: Well, like you said, we, we've done a, a few on thyroid. We did a two-part series on iodine and thyroid. And there's a lot of controversy about iodine and thyroid. So um, I wanted to kind of dispel some of the myths and give people a very evidence-based narrative mm-hmm. on that issue. So that was one. Uh, we've also done one on Graves' disease, which doesn't get as much attention as hypothyroid does. but it's Yeah, all the cool that, kids have hypothyroid. Right, exactly. Yeah, that, that, the the analogy there, yeah, of, of of the analogy I like to use is, is Graves is kind of like the nerdy cousin that no one talks to, right. and, and hypothyroid is the cool kid. Um, but people with Graves have maybe more at stake than people with with Hashimoto's because the people with Graves may be confronted with either removing or what's called radioactive ablation of their thyroid, which which damages the thyroid and, and pretty much destroys it. So if we can avoid that, we we would definitely like to. Uh, so those are a few of the episodes we've we've done a two part series on SIBO. Um, we had Rob Wolf on also when we talked about a litany of different topics. We had a, um, PhD who, uh, we discussed the evolution of the gut in order to help people determine what their ideal carbohydrate consumption might be from an evolutionary perspective. Uh-huh. Um, and there's been a, a few others, but those are the ones that kind of come right to the top of my head.
1: Right, and, and I, uh, Rob introduced uh, Michael to me because I I've heard him on some shows and I've been following a lot of his blogs and stuff, and uh, I want him to be in our next movie, for the uh, why 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 are we so sick? It will follow up our documentary on why am I so fat. So. You know, if he's the first guest on the show, that I think highly of him because we, you know, we want the good people on here. Absolutely.
0: Then why do you have me on here, Tony? Uh, you pretty. <laughs> we need uh. someone to be pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So
1: uh, so we're going to be uh, having a lot of interview stuff in that in the movie and you'll get to see how pretty Dr. Ruggio is mm-hmm. when that movie comes out too. But today we're going to talk <laughs> a lot about gut infections uh, because you're the captain of gut infection information.
3: Yeah, well I um thank you by the way. And 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 that was something that really it was a, a big piece of my life where where I originally wanted to go into um I, I probably would have ended up at orthopedic surgery, which is what I initially wanted to do as I started kind of segueing and in, in getting into my medical career. And then when I was twenty three, I was in college. I, I had formerly played lacrosse in college. Um, always had a lot of energy always felt really 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 good did you find
1: um, that you, that the girls flocked to you when you played lacrosse because it's not one of the more popular sports but it's really intense and you got to be like a macho dude to play
3: yeah, I mean, I can't say if, if lacrosse ever made it made a huge difference one way <laughs> one way or the other, but um, okay. I know, just I, I
2: needed to know. That was
0: I <laughs> a... think being a doctor would make a bigger yeah, difference. Yeah, that's the probably chicks. More You're a help. doctor. Okay.
2: Tony's just looking for an angle. He's anything. Right.
0: Well, I, need,
3: I need something to counterbalance my personality. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good. <laughs> so anyway, so you're playing lacrosse. Um, yeah, I'm playing lacrosse. No, and uh, I I actually was a personal trainer at the time and had all the dietary and, and lifestyle stuff, if you will, dialed in. Eating organic, sleeping plenty, didn't have much stress, uh, was meditating and, and really just had everything from the dietary and lifestyle factors dialed into where you would think I would continue to feel awesome.
1: Right.
3: And All of a sudden, I started having insomnia. I started I, The insomnia was terrible. I, I would wake up in the middle of the night, not be able to fall back to sleep unless I Drove down to the gas station and bought like a Kit bar, and I just didn't know. It was almost like I was losing control of my own body, right? Because I knew how bad a Kit Kat bar is, yet I was—I would wake up and just be craving it so bad at like three o'clock in the morning, and I'd be walking into the gas station feeling like a jerk. <laughs> like, what the hell am I doing? I got right. like, internal conflict. Yeah, you gotta sleep. So you know right. what do you do. Right. Uh, and then I'd be tired during the day and, and uh, I started. Not- I thought I, I had hypothyroidism because I started noticing I was cold for the first time in my life and I felt like my hair was starting to get thin and just a lot of nasty symptoms. And I figured, well, something's clearly off. I'll go see my doc and, and he'll figure it out and I'll just run through it no problem. And I saw three doctors, an endocrinologist, an internist and a general practitioner. And none of them had any answers for me. They all said, "Well, you're young, you're healthy." Because um, the problem was, I didn't really look sick, right? I, I still had a you know that former athlete shell, and so mm-hmm. on the outside, I looked pretty healthy, and the regular blood markers all checked out. Um, but I, and I think <laughs> a lot of a lot of
1: people see this because they, you know, people look at them, and even their doctor might look at them and say, "Your blood looks great. You're a hero. You're fantastic. Nothing's wrong." But still you know, like, yeah, something is not right because I remember not feeling like this before and now this is kind of lousy.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And and so it wasn't until I found a functional medicine provider who figured out that I had a, an intestinal parasite. And I, I remember when he first suggested we test for an intestinal parasite inside my head, I was like, this guy is full of <laughs> <I'm> like, Come <laughs> up. you know? Um, cause I didn't, I didn't, I, myself, didn't have a lot in the way of digestive symptoms. My digestive symptoms were, were pretty mild um, and he said, well, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll put you on an adrenal support program that that will help give you a little bit of a boost but if things don't start to really improve in the next few months, then I'd like you to do this test and you know, what do you got to lose? I was a college student at the time and it, the stool test I had to do was about $300 which right. I had to save up. When I was a college student I had to save up for like a haircut. So you know doing <laughs> doing a $300 test was So it was like do this uh, test
1: or or have long hair.
3: Right. Exactly. <laughs> 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 um, so I eventually did the test and found out I had a uh, an intestinal parasite and um, it was only treating that parasite that really turned my case around and I, I had tried the thyroid herbs and the libido herbs and the thyroid herbs and the the kelp chips and you know everything that is kind of the first stuff that you land at when you go on the internet and start looking up you know why you're not feeling well right and those things helped a little bit but nothing really caused a significant change and, and, and so it wasn't until I really identified the underlying cause of Of my problems and treated that cause, that I saw an improvement. And so that was a big eye opener for me. And I decided to follow in the footsteps of that doctor and and, and, kind of go into more alternative medicine and specialize in functional medicine. So that's what I do now, pretty much on a a day to day basis.
1: And it seems like that's a lot of the best, you know, practitioners and researchers and uh, just experts out there are people, you know, like Will and I talk about a lot that this is kind of how we got started. We each had our own problems that kind of made us uh, seek out better information because the information that was available was lousy and you know made us feel worse so uh, that's why I I I connect with you really well cuz I know that you went through the work for yourself and when you get to improve it's like hey let's let's help other people do this
3: exactly i mean it can be a really eye opening experience just having something go wrong with yourself and, and having to figure that out and I, and i remember actually the doctor that treated me said when when he diagnosed the infection that I had, he said, "All right, so this is a pretty bad one. This is gonna kind of suck going through this process." And pardon my pardon my candor, but uh, he said, "You're gonna learn a lot from it." And he, he said, "You know, right now you're not happy. I get that, but in a year, or two, or three, when you look back on this and you have this experience, you're gonna be thankful." And and I really was because because that experience has helped to keep me grounded and uh, and just have that you know bring me. Bring me back to this position of how important the gut is, and not get swept up in the latest fad or craze, and just remember the importance of these kind of core principles.
1: Right, and so now when you have patients that come into your office and they, they kind of take their health for granted, you give them a parasite.
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: if if, if if patients aren't aren't pleasant, you hand them we, out. We we infect them on the way out. That's yeah. great. It's a good plan. <laughs> yeah, because
1: look I'll how I'll take well, a tapeworm. Yeah, I he you lose weight we can with handle, that. You handle a tapeworm, maybe. Um, so let's let's get into SIBO a little bit because we have a bunch of questions from listeners who wanted to get some input from you too. But maybe you could just give us a, a quick rundown of what SIBO even means and uh, what we're looking at.
3: Sure. So so SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and this is a condition where you you have an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine, and the small intestine starts to look more like. The the colon colon or the large intestine should have a fairly high amount of bacteria. The small intestine should not have that much bacteria. So what can happen is the bacteria from the colon or the large intestine kind of grow up into the small intestine. And when they get there, uh, these bacteria can really cause significant damage and problems. Up to 84% of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome may actually be caused by this SIBO. And this SIBO can cause leaky gut, it can cause intestinal damage that looks similar to that which happens in celiac disease or or clinical gluten allergy. Um, It can cause gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, and oscillation between the two of those, um, abdominal pain. And we're learning more now about how people can also have what's called extra intestinal symptoms. Like I mentioned that I had this parasite, didn't have much in the way of digestive symptoms, but I was having fatigue and I was having insomnia. We're learning the same thing holds true for, for SIBO where it's a problem in the gut but it can cause things like uh, joint pain, depression, um, skin conditions, and even maybe, maybe even something like restless leg. So it can have fairly far-reaching implications. Yeah. Right,
1: yeah. We, we talk about a lot of topics on our show, and it's pretty rare that we don't lead back to some type of digestive stuff going on at some point, and Kenna gets really upset with us because it seems like all we talk about is poop and, and <laughs> digestion mm-hmm. and the gut. So well, let's get into some questions, and then uh, we can get into more specifics of what's going on and what somebody can do or look at. Uh, so let's. What you got there, Kenna.
0: Randy from Charlotte, North Carolina. How do you test for SIBO?
3: The best way to test for SIBO. Well, um, let me let me outline this a little bit. The the what's considered the gold standard in conventional medicine is testing what's called jejunal aspirates, and, and the jejunum is the second section of the small intestine. Um, and so you would need to actually get a, actually get a physical sample from that section of the small intestine, which is very invasive and very hard to do. And so that test is not really something that is widely available in clinical practice because of the invasive nature. So the test that's now being accepted and is very well researched and validated is a breath test where uh, a patient will drink what's called lactulose. Now, I would recommend lactulose because sometimes... Different labs try to use a different solution, but the lactulose is, is very important. You drink lactulose, and then you collect repeat breath samples over a few hours, and two gases are analyzed. And it's also important to have the two gases analyzed because sometimes a lab will only analyze one gas if they have an older machine, for example. And the two gases are hydrogen and methane. So the test is called the lactulose-hydrogen-methane breath test
1: and the yeah. laculose is just like a, a type of carb or something that you don't digest and you're just able to monitor it
3: exactly it's, it's a non-absorbable prebiotic that feeds the bacteria um, and as this lactulose is kind of weaving its way through your intestinal tract it will feed bacteria those bacteria will then uh, produce gases and those gases show up in the breath and depending on how early uh, in the test in terms of, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, how early we see a spike of these gases that tells us if someone actually has overgrowth or does not have overgrowth.
1: So if it happens later, they're thinking that it's further down the line.
3: If it happened yet, but if it happens too late, then we're thinking it's in the colon. And so that would be normal. So there, there's, Mm, there's a cutoff point. Uh, usually it's about 120 minutes. If Gases elevate after 120 minutes; it's considered normal. But if they elevate before, then it's considered positive. And yes, to your point, uh, if we see an elevation more toward the end, we're thinking the b- bacterial overgrowth is more toward the end of the small intestine. And if we're seeing it more in the beginning, we're thinking it's more in the beginning of the small intestine.
1: Okay, that's cool. And and so uh, the the patient would go into the doctor's office. He's there for 120 minutes at least. Doing that. So that's, a, that's plenty of time to load them up with a parasite if they're annoying.
3: Or <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's oh. a back strategy. And, and I should mention that um, if, if your local doctor doesn't want to do this, it is able to be done as a home test. So, for example, our office, we work with patients both locally in our clinic and we also see patients via the phone and Skype from a distance. And if, if they're out of state, for example, we can just mail them the kit and it's just a little sample kit, and you can collect all the samples in the comfort of your own home. So uh, if you can't get it locally, don't let that discourage you, and I would just you know, sh- shop around until you find a doctor who's willing to do it, or a lab that's willing to, to send you a test.
1: Oh, very cool, okay. I didn't know that you could do that on a home test. That's great.
3: And I should also mention that there's also a urine test, which some providers may advocate. I would advise people against the urine test um, I I typically use the urine test as maybe a backup screening, but the urine test hasn't really been validated for SIBO, so we don't don't know how accurate of a test that is, and so if someone goes to see a local provider and they want to do a urine test, I would really push to have the breath test because, um, again, the urine test hasn't been fully scientifically validated yet.
1: Okay, so before we get to the next question, so let's say that you test somebody for SIBO and they, they win, they're they loaded, um, what are the, the steps that you would want to take with them?
3: In terms of treatment? Yeah. There's generally three different options a patient has for treatment. There are uh, antibiotics, pharmaceutical antibiotics, and there, there's two that tend to be used. Uh, Rifaximin also goes by the name Zifaxin, uh, and also Neomycin. Uh, can be used, and there are herbs that work in a very similar capacity, and there, there's really a number of herbs that can be used in this in this context. But these these are kind of like the kind of classic anti-parasite herbs, like oregano oil, grapefruit seed extract, um, berberine, right. uh, garlic, uh, and and they have been used. There was one study performed where a uh, a gastroenterologist put half of his patients on the pharmaceutical antibiotic and the other half on the herbs and they produced about an equivalent, um, cure rate or equivalent success rate. So it seems that they work about effective, about equally as effective. Um,
1: do you find that when you're using the herbs that you need to use more than one at a time or do you just, does it depend on different factors that makes you decide which one to use?
3: You know, there there's some debate as to whether it's better to use uh, one herb or, or one or two herbs in high doses, or a multitude of herbs. Um, and for me, I start with with an herbal mixture, what we would call like a, a broader spectrum sort of herbal blend. And then if that doesn't fully do it, I revert to a more concentrated, you know, one or two herbs in higher doses, concentrated. Now, also sometimes people will have other Infections along with SIBO. And so that will kind of steer the recommendation to try to get to try to use an herb that maybe has a spillover benefit for the SIBO and the other secondary uh, yeah, infection. Yeah,
1: okay.
3: Um, so sometimes you you color things a little bit differently depending on the patient. But um, yeah, the, the, the herbs work very well. They seem to be very well tolerated. And the antibiotics, I have to say that um, the, the rifaximin seems to have a, a pretty good track record with not causing some of the typical antibiotic-associated problems that, that people are, are, are probably familiar with. So um, the antibiotics are used appropriately. They seem to be pretty okay. Uh, and then the, the, the third option is known as the elemental diet. And this is where someone essentially does a liquid diet for about two weeks. And there are commercial preparations. Uh, one is known as, as Vivanex or Vivanex Plus. And it's kind of expensive. Insurance will cover it in some cases, but typically it's not what I use because uh, one of my colleagues, Allison Seibecker, who's a SIBO specialist, put together a homemade version where you can just make the commercial version at home with, with store-bought ingredients. And so that's what we, what we typically have patients do if they're going to do the elemental diet. The hard thing about this is, one, it tastes pretty terrible. Terrible. <laughs> and, well, that's fun. Yeah, and, and two, you're only consuming this—no solid foods, just this. For so two you're weeks.
1: you're drinking some of this horrible, and you're punching people in the face as you walk around town because you're only drinking
3: liquid.
2: And what does it consist of? Is it, is it like a?
3: It's a like? mixture of. I think it's the the amino acids that really give it the the noxious taste. Mm. Um, but it's a mixture of uh, some some carbohydrates, some amino acids, uh, and some fatty acids. Um, and the the people that tend to gravitate toward this are people that either have done other treatments like the herbs or the antibiotics and not been able to fully clear the infection uh-huh. or people who already notice they feel terrible when they eat anything. And they've already kind of fallen into the pattern of, well, a lot of times I don't even eat because I feel so terrible when I do eat. So sure, doc. I mean, if I were to not eat for two weeks, that would... Actually, not be a big deal because I feel better when I don't eat anyway. Yeah, so, I
1: like that. If somebody's miserable for ten years, why not just you know be a little more miserable for a few weeks or even a month uh, to, to see if you can make some improvement.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've got a few options and, and uh, depending on the person, their history and, and, and some of these other options, we will we'll just discuss and, and pick a treatment that's, that's best for the particular patient.
1: Okay, great. That, that'll bring us right into the, the next question.
0: Candace, what is the relapse rate of SIBO and what's the best way to avoid a relapse?
3: Mm, that's a great question. Right? And as far as I know, and I've done a pretty thorough search on this, we, we don't have an official relapse rate. Now, I think it really depends, and one of the things that confounds us, we, we haven't done a study that's been large enough to really give us an average relapse rate. So what we do have is different clinicians who kind of discuss this and have an estimate in terms of their relapse rate. So using myself, what I see as a relapse rate, I would say the relapse rate I see is probably – between forty and sixty percent of people will will relapse. Now, how, if long, you is ask, that,
1: how long does that usually take? When you, when you in your experience,
3: how long how long are they SIBO free before they relapse? Yeah, yeah. Usually, it occurs fairly early on, after a few months. If people can go four or five months and have SIBO be in remission that entire time, usually they seem to be. Pretty good from there on out, at least in, in my sample population. But we are working right now, and, and hopefully, we'll be enrolling patients in the next few months for a randomized control trial where we're going to be studying a uh, one of the therapies that we think helps prevent relapse. Huh. Um, and we're going to be we're going to be studying that to see what kind of an what kind of an effect this treatment has. That that it's used off label quite often for preventing SIBO relapse, but no one's really done a study to know if it actually does work. And so we're hopefully going to be able to publish a paper on that in the next year or so uh, from the study in our clinic. But So the, the relapse rate on the low end, I would say um, maybe around 40%. Now, some of my other colleagues that that treat a population of more Chronically ill patients, like like my colleague Allison Seidbecker for example, where she only treats SIBO, so she tends to see um, she tends to see people that have already been treated and you know failed out of treatment in one doctor's office and then right. gone to another, and and so she sees a very challenging population. And I forget what her exact estimate was, but I believe it was somewhere uh, along the lines of seventy percent or even higher. So the population of people that you're working with, I think, has has an impact on, on the relapse rate. So the so, more
1: the more severe it is, the harder it is to really wipe it out. And and, and of course, if there's some you know underlying cause that's allowing this to exist, and uh, that underlying cause is not fixed, but the you know the SIBO is just wiped out, I imagine it would be a lot easier for it to come back for that person.
3: Exactly, and it's almost like thinking of it maybe like a shoulder injury. If you had a really minor uh tendon tear and you'd probably be able to bounce back really easily. But if you had a complete tendon tear, um, you know, your your bounce back or your your relapse rate might be a little bit different. So yeah, I think I think the severity uh, dictates the the relapse rate. So maybe between 40-70% depending on you know the the person and, and the the clinician maybe. Uh, and then in terms of the best ways to avoid relapse, there's a few strategies that can be used once we've eradicated SIBO and these are. Uh,
1: <laughs> you, you sounded like your mic fell over or something. <laughs> oh
3: you no! Know, I, I I accidentally hit the mute button. I, oh, I didn't even cool. realize it. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm glad you caught that. I guess it must be pretty sensitive. Uh, so, the first thing that we'll do is once we've objectified via retesting that the SIBO is clear, we will put someone on a low FODMAP diet or a low FODMAP combined with SCD diet. And, um, and for those, those who, who don't
1: know, maybe explain what a, yeah, a low yeah. FODMAP diet is.
3: Um, so both these diets are essentially doing the same or similar things where, uh, the low FODMAP diet, for example, and, and FODMAP just stands for fermentable oligo dye, monosaccharides, uh, polysaccharides. Um, let me see. Yeah, I think, I got, and, uh, phenols, I, I believe, um, so uh, I may may have left out one of the. Uh, it's just funny. <laughs> I've never even
1: I've never even spelled it all out. I just you know you hear fodmap so much that you just oh it's a fodmap thing.
3: Yeah, exactly. No, it's, and polyols, polyols is the piece. So it's just it's oligo, mono, di, which is a different form of the carbohydrate, uh, saccharides. So oligosaccharide, monosaccharide, disaccharide, uh, and then polyols. And these are these are just compounds in foods that function like prebiotics or function to feed bacteria. And, and so with the current kind of microbiotic craze, you hear a lot about, oh my gosh, we have to feed our gut bugs, it's so important to feed our gut bacteria and, and all this and there's certainly some truth to that but there are also some people where that is the last thing you want to do because they have a condition of bacterial overgrowth. So a low FODMAP diet doesn't include foods that really feed bacteria because we don't want the bacteria to grow back.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and the SCD diet's very similar, and it, 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 they're just foods that tend to feed bacteria, um, and so not consuming a lot of those foods or going on a low um, FODMAP, SCD diet. Right, and the SCD
1: is, stands for a specific carbohydrate diet, where they just you know pull out a lot of those that are similar foods.
3: Exactly, exactly. The other strategy that can be used is something known as a prokinetic agent, and there mm-hmm. are Pharmaceutical and there are natural prokinetic agents and uh, pro just means uh, it, it it helps and kinetic just means movement so it's pro movement it's, it's aiding in movement uh, and specifically it aids in the movement of food through the small intestines and one of the theories as to what causes SIBO is when people have impaired small intestinal motility or things don't move the the small intestines at an adequate pace then that can foster bacterial overgrowth, kind of like stagnant water fosters bacterial overgrowth and flowing water doesn't. Same thing with food in the small intestines. Right, so you want to
1: drink out of a stream, not some pool of water that's just sitting there.
3: Exactly, exactly. And so a prokinetic would make your small intestine more like a stream rather than a pond, so to speak. And uh, erythromycin is a medication that is used in this application, also low-dose naltrexone, uh, another medication call, called tegaserod, uh, and I believe tegaserod was actually taken off the market recently because of cardiovascular complications. Yeah, you don't want uh, that. Right. So, uh, eryth- low dose erythromycin seems to work work the best uh, potentially. Um, and then there's also some natural compounds like ginger. There's also another uh, formula called Iberogast, which which functions as a prokinetic. We think. Um, and so administering those once someone has cleared SIBO will help keep the water flowing, so to speak, and prevent this uh, bacteria overgrowth from coming back, hopefully. Huh. And, and then a third strategy, um, I'm sure if, if you guys have ever gone a number of hours without eating, you hear that gr- that, that grumble in your stomach, right. right? What that grumble in your stomach is, is it's actually uh, something known as the migratory motor complex, or um, it's kind of like that. That movement—it's it, it, a—it's a wave that kind of sweeps bacteria out of your small intestine, and we want that because we don't—again, we don't want these bacteria building up. We want to keep things kind of moving and flowing through. And fasting or, or going a few hours without food actually stimulates that migratory motor complex or that cleaning wave or that sweeping wave. So, if patients can do it and they—they they don't have problems with low blood sugar, for example. Then we'll ask them to go at least four hours to five hours in between meals to help stimulate that cleaning wave. But some people can't do that, and so
1: and still be friendly, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, some people get really mean when they don't eat. So, <laughs> <laughs> you we know,
0: mm-hmm.
3: for
1: those. can Kenny, you know about that,
0: yeah? Huh. But I'm always mean, so oh,
1: that works out. Then,
2: mm-hmm. well, you had the yeah. One question I had for you, um, doctor, was it was related to like what do you th- what are some of the um, primary known causes of SIBO, but it sounds like you, you kind of got into that in, in the answers that you provided for the different methodologies of treatment. It sounded like you, you've you pinpointed that certain types of carbohydrates are fermentable products and just lack of like speed of the bolus moving through the intestinal tract is some of the main culprits behind SIBO. Is, is that correct? Or are there other identified causes? Well,
3: there, there's, there's a few. Uh, certainly, the motility issue like we've been discussing, that, that seems to have received the most attention right now, and that's, that's kind of the forerunner for maybe the, the main mechanism for a lot of people. And to elaborate on that, what we think happens, uh, and we actually have pretty good documentation of this, is if someone's ever had a bout of, of food poisoning, traveler's diarrhea, uh, stomach flu... What's, what's collectively known as acute gastroenteritis, when, when that bout of sickness occurs.
1: The less uh, fancy word is stuff shooting out both ends.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Both end, diarrhea, vomiting, exactly. <laughs> uh, when, when that happens, um, we think that the immune system starts to damage some of the cells in the intestinal lining that are in charge of regulating motility. And so then the water doesn't move through at an adequate pace and fosters this bacterial overgrowth, so to speak. So we think one of the main mechanisms is uh, actually gut autoimmunity after a, a bout of, of stomach illness or infection that alters motility. And when the motility is altered, that sets the stage for bacterial overgrowth. And, and actually, I, I just uh, received notice today that a lab test was Will become available actually uh, May seventeenth. That we'll be able to test these antibodies um, to to kind of help people with with sorting out this diagnosis. Um, so that is that is the maybe primary one of the more important mechanisms. Um, now, there's also if, if people have been using acid suppressing medication, sure, like, yeah, uh, or or. And I know you guys talk a lot about stomach acid and the importance of that um and in this in this application it, it's no uh, no exception where if you're suppressing stomach acid you allow things to grow in the intestinal tract that maybe shouldn't
1: yeah you kind of uh, open the door for the party to come in
3: exactly so um that is another one that there's also some medications that can impair motility like if someone's using opioid painkillers those actually slow down intestinal motility and are a mm-hmm. risk factor for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth
2: oh, and then
3: Certain intestinal um, disorders or, or anatomical, anatomical, excuse me, changes, um, uh, pockets, non-draining pockets, uh, things that can happen in inflammatory bowel disease, for example, uh, where people have changes in the anatomy that may cause uh, occlusions or blockages or pockets, uh, is also another risk factor. But the main ones are probably going to be acid-suppressing medication someone who has had one or a few bouts of food poisoning or stomach flu and then any kind of uh, opioid medication use. Those are probably the most common but I should also mention that and this is more my observation than something that we have a lot of scientific studies to back up but if people are eating really poorly and are highly stressed. Uh, I think that can also set the stage because there's almost nothing that's not going to make worse. Um, so, you know, not to not to forget the basics of just healthy diet and lifestyle. I think that can also be really helpful to to prevent SIBO.
1: Right, and when you're you know stress is affecting the body and the body's ability to handle its business, you know, maybe maybe a little invader that it could have taken care of if it wasn't so stressed now it can set up camp and, and cause problems. Um, so, let's see what, what's our next question? Can I-
0: Harriet from Fort Worth, Texas, do you see a correlation between clearing SIBO and weight loss?
3: I do. Not in every case, um, but 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 in some cases. And there's actually been some published data recently supporting this. Uh, depending on, and I know this is a concept that you wanted to elaborate on later, Tony, so let me know when you want to do the the deep dive and we can do that. Um, but depending on the type of SIBO, it, it may increase the amount of calories you're able to absorb from your food and, or what's called energy harvesting in the gut. Yeah, so, let's go
1: into that. You're going to talk about the, the methane gas and the hydrogen and the, the different okay. bacteria benefiting the other one. I like that.
3: Okay. So, um, again, depending on the type of SIBO, it may lead to weight gain and then treatment may lead to weight loss. And uh, a study was published a few months ago where they showed that people – who were overweight, had a higher incidence of this overgrowth. And then treatment also helped improve metabolic parameters like insulin sensitivity and cholesterol levels. Uh, and I've seen in a few patients in the clinic some fairly dramatic weight loss from treating SIBO. And uh, there's actually, and I don't know, Tony, if you're going to have a transcript or links. but Yeah,
1: we will have, we'll have show notes and stuff too.
3: Okay, so uh, I'll send you a link for this patient because this is actually very good timing where I was reading this newly published study showing this metabolic or weight correlation with SIBO and a few weeks later, someone walked in who fit that exact bill. She had the exact type of SIBO that this study was talking about and then she lost probably about 25 pounds on the paleo diet and then we treated her SIBO and she lost another 20 pounds or so. and so I like to capture these moments. So we just her and I just kind of uh, connected via Skype one day and, and discussed it. So I'll put that link in there if. if
1: yeah, well, out of the show notes, so people can check that out. That's great to see stories from people in real life that oh, this I did this and it helped things.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and, and she did really well, and she, and she was happy, of course, you know, as, as was I. Um, <laughs> but but what we think happens underneath the surface? Um, so there, there's two types of of organisms in SIBO. There's organisms, and I say organisms because they're not all bacteria. Uh, some of them are actually archaea, which is like a cousin of, of bacteria, but it's a different class of organism. So I just use the, the, the term organism to uh, be more technically correct.
1: But you can uh, visualize it as bacteria and their cousin, Ray Ray.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, all, all little critters, pretty much. Uh-huh. Um, So there are organisms that produce hydrogen, and there are organisms, hydrogen gas, and there are organisms that produce uh, methane gas. And here's what we're starting to piece together. Uh, The organisms that release hydrogen gas, as that hydrogen gas they release starts to build up, that gas is kind of poisonous to those organisms and prevents them from overgrowing. Okay. So it, it, it's, it's, maybe we could say if we had you know, way too many cars in a city, we'd have too much CO2 buildup, and then the government would come in and say, okay, we have to reduce emissions because these gases are killing us. yeah
1: Or right? there'd just be like dead drivers on the side of the road, but that would reduce the amount of people that are actually driving.
3: <laughs> exactly, and that right. same thing happens with, with the hydrogen colony, except if there is a colony of these methane bugs right next to them or close to them, the methane bugs actually consume the hydrogen gas in order to make methane.
1: So you're saying by the methane bugs, these are bugs that make methane gas.
3: Exactly. And so so the, the methane bugs can start breathing in the hydrogen or consuming the hydrogen. And so now the ability of that hydrogen gas to build up and stop the hydrogen-producing bugs from growing is gone. Right. And so there's nothing to check the growth of the hydrogen bugs and this allows the overgrowth to really kind of spiral out of control. And what we think happens is because bacteria help us break down food and absorb more calories, we think that people absorb more calories from their food when this overgrowth happens. And, and it's, it's when specifically people have an overgrowth of hydrogen, hydrogen organisms and methane organisms. And that's what's been shown in studies to correlate with overweight and obesity and treatment to correlate with improvement in metabolism.
1: Right. So you're saying that the bacteria have an effect on how much of the actual nutrients we can use from the food that we consume. So if something's not allowing that to happen correctly, then the person ends up eating more food or needing more and not actually getting nutrients out of it.
3: They do, and, and maybe as much as 10% of our caloric absorption occurs with the aid of bacteria in our gut. Um, but if, if those things get out of control, then you can have uh, potentially too much or excessive energy absorption. And, I mean, that wouldn't be a bad thing necessarily if we were in a society where food was scarce, right? right. That would be a survival advantage in a certain society. But, of course, it's But not I got I got
1: Cheetos in my pocket right yeah. now. <laughs> Yeah,
3: it's not the the problem uh, in really any westernized society, yeah. But this really explains why, you know,
1: two people could have the same bacteria in their system, um, same type of infection, and one's causing all kinds of trouble, but one is held in check because the one that's causing trouble had a little pal next door that was, you know, consuming up its uh, excess hydrogen, allowing it to further expand.
3: It does it doesn't it, and I think it, it it illustrates the importance of of context and uh and I'm not sure if your listeners or or, or if you guys have, have discussed the microbiota much is that something you guys have, have touched on
1: we We touch on it some, but we don't we're having you on because we want to really get dig into it
3: okay well that that's a whole nother that's <laughs> a whole nother probably podcast in and of itself, but we're learning a lot about the microbiota, which is essentially the unique world of bacteria. And we're not talking about an infection like SIBO or H. pylori or a worm. We're talking about um, thousands of species of bacteria and and what that entire world of bacteria look like in your gut. And we're learning that they have a um, potentially strong impact on health. And one of the things that I'm concerned about is Researchers are going and studying populations like the Hadza, which are hunter-gatherers mm-hmm. in Africa, mm-hmm. and they're observing what their microbiotas look like. And not the researchers, but I think other people who are reading this research and coming to their own conclusions are starting to make recommendations that we should mimic the diet of the Hadza. So this is
1: this is Rainier's question. Is and I know that you love this question. So I'm going to have Kenna read it to you now and I'll tell Kenna Mm-mm. that this word is so the Kenna Ken is going to make this sound like a cuss word I'm sure it's vermicutes and bacteroidetes Firmicades and bacteroidetes. I'm a simple girl
0: from Texas. We don't have words like that. (laughs) Okay, Raina. In obese people, the formicides Uh bacterium dominates, while in slim people, the (laughs) bacteroidetes (laughs) dominates. How can you increase the bacteroidetes? (laughs) That word. How can you increase it?
3: I'm so glad that she asked this question because... That hypothesis has been disproven.
0: Yay! And,
3: and that, that is a perfect example of the misinformation that I think is circulating in regards to this topic. Quick side note I'm, I'm writing a series of articles, and I don't know if it's going to be an ebook, an article series. Um, we'll definitely also release it as a podcast on this whole issue of the microbiota in confusion. Because there's a lot of confusion there. And I think people are starting to think things and do things that are counterproductive because of this misinformation and misinterpretation of the information. Um, so if, if people – you know, and, and I'm sure you'll have the link to my website or, or whatever it is. Yeah. But if, if people want to plug into that, I would, I would really recommend it because this is a keynote example of misinformation. And so I'm taking a lot of time to write all these points down and, and help people understand this from a more accurate perspective. And um, and
1: on Dr. Russo's site it's great. His search box is great. You can really in anything that he talked about today, you can go and put it into that search box and you're probably going to find some great information about it too.
3: Yes. And right on the homepage there there's a newsletter sign up and, and whatever article or podcast we do, we just send out a quick notification, you know, hey this just went out, have a look and so when and as all the microbiota information is released you'll be notified if you want to sign up through the newsletter but but to come to this issue of formicides to bacterioides, initial animal data was very promising in this regard and it created a lot of excitement in, in myself included however we there there is a you, there is a universe of of difference between saying something looks good in an animal and being able to say something looks good in a human. right? And that's one of the huge follies of what's happening right now in, in regard to this research, where people are over-extrapolating from animal data, and it's very, very bad science and very, very bad practice to do that. Because when follow-up studies were performed in humans this time, most of the studies, over 50% of the studies, I should say, to be, to be more accurate, showed that this Ratio had no bearing on obesity or weight gain whatsoever.
1: Right, and so you know, people see, hey, a rat lost weight, so this is the answer, and the people get so excited, they just want there to be an answer, like this is the thing, just change your gut flora to this, and everything works. And the reality is that there's, there's just, there's never going to be a, a one-size-fits-all answer, and, and you really got to, you know, it's more complicated than that.
3: It is, and, and unfortunately people exploit whatever's popular at the moment. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I understand people, you know, some people make a living off of educating people and producing content. But, you know, we, we shouldn't misconstrue information because what you have is this, where, where someone may, might be putting a lot of their hopes in this ratio as a potential treatment for their obesity. And even worse, they may go out and spend a few hundred dollars on a test to identify that and then follow up with several hundred dollars or even thousands of dollars trying to treat that ratio only to find that it didn't have any effect.
1: Right, and, and there's only so many things that a person can try before they start to think, well, I'm just, this is just me. This is a I genetic thing and I, I'm, this is just how it is. I give up. I'm done.
3: Right, and, and I, I totally get that people aren't feeling well or they're struggling with something and they're looking for answers. I mean, I was, I was that way myself for, for years of my life, but, what I want to prevent people from uh, doing is just making a non-fully uh, non educated decision on, on a healthcare intervention. And, and so, there, I mean, there's, gosh, there's so much I can say on that specific topic. Um, but to put it succinctly, the human data does not support that ratio um, being implicated in obesity. Uh, and what that really means, to, to say that bluntly, is some of the studies show that skinny people have more Firmicutes and overweight people have more Bacteroidetes. Right, so some of the studies show the exact opposite. Um, not only that, but other studies have, have looked at, specifically in a Korean population, they they performed a microbial test on day one, a month later, and another month later. And they found that the Firmicutes to Bacteroidetes ratio can completely invert a a month. So how could you do a test and say, I have too much formicutes, I have to increase my bacteriologies. How could you do a test and then say that if you just did that test another 30 days later, you may be completely inverted. So um, yeah, we're really not at a point where we can make any claims or treatments in in that regard, unfortunately. Right. And I mean, God, you know, there's just so many things in my head right now because I'm so deep into this particular topic. But another example is uh, the camp of feeding our gut bugs, okay, you know. Uh, we need to feed our gut bugs. That's that's the the thing. A lot of this boils down to now. Or, you know, feed... before
1: you, before you get into that, Carl had a question about that. Let's let's talk. Let's look at that one and oh, see what okay. you think.
3: Okay.
0: Bo, uh, Carl from Bowling Green, Kentucky. What is your opinion on using resistant starch as a pre uh, prebiotic? Is potato starch a good form to use? If so, what amount would you recommend for it to be effective?
3: That's gotcha. Okay. So another another great question. Prebiotics for some people can be helpful. But for other people they can actually make them worse and so the there's a craze right now about healthy carbohydrates and, and feeding your gut bacteria
1: right
3: and I'm not saying there's nothing there's nothing to that. I'm not saying that that's something that no one should do. There are a lot of people that prebiotics will make them worse and and so it's not the first thing that I recommend right out of the gate um, so, Potato starch, I think, is okay, but the the challenge and the problem with potato starch is it's a very potent dose and sometimes a very high dose of one specific prebiotic, and that's not really what we would be exposed to naturally, so to speak, right? Uh, I think a much more prudent strategy would be obtaining the different types of resistant starch, two, three, and four, from your diet as best you can because that will prevent you uh, or help to prevent you from creating an imbalance um, and overdosing.
1: And is there is there a line in there, you know, it's like, a, like whether you're looking at prebiotic foods or even fermented foods, uh, are there indications that would help someone understand, okay, do I need more or less of these type things?
3: There, there are. Um, and this is something that I'm really going to expand upon in, in that article series, but the the, the, sh- the short version is the first thing I like to do is put people on a autoimmune paleo or paleo-type diet that's lower in carb, maybe 100 grams or less a day, and then see how that works for them. Uh, and then with time over the next few months, we'll have that patient go through a food allergy reintroduction. like We'll have them bring back in dairy see if they can tolerate dairy. We'll have them bring back in some grains, see if they can tolerate the grains. And we'll have them work through the foods that they cut out in kind of your typical reintroduction fashion just to figure out how much dietary leeway they have, right? Because we don't want to have everyone on a restricted diet if they don't have to be. If people can have some dairy, then why not let them have a little bit of dairy, right? Right. After that, we do the same thing with carbohydrate. And we have them start bringing in um, more potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, maybe more doses of grains, more of these foods that have resistant starch or FODMAPs or prebiotics in them. And some people will notice they feel better. Some people will notice they start to feel worse and they have a regression of their uh, of how they're feeling. Um, so there's a spectrum in terms of how much carb and how much prebiotic people will thrive on. And I'm I'm glad to see that the Kind of paleo community has identified that not everyone needs to be on a low carb diet all the time, which right. I absolutely agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to force everyone into this new model, which is lots of prebiotics, lots of starches, because that will make some people worse. And that's been documented where people, for example, who are hypothyroid and people who have celiac, for example, uh, a number of studies have shown that those patient populations have too much bacteria in their small intestines. And so, a high, higher carb or higher prebiotic intervention would would make those patients worse. Just
1: magnify so, all that.
3: Yeah. So it's not about saying that uh, low carb is right or this carb renaissance is right or people are right or wrong and creating this polarized kind of uh, you know endpoints, but having a process you work through to help you identify you know where you should be on the spectrum and certainly not reading about. <laughs> you know like the Hadza for example that eat more non-starch um, polysaccharides and eat more resistant starch and eat lots of grains and thinking we should replicate that because what's left out of that conversation is the Hadza eat about half the calories we do they have to literally grind their grains by hand before they can even eat them oh, and wow. they have and they have an amount uh, uh, they have an immense amount of contact with dirt nature and animals which has a huge impact on your immune system right so and, we,
1: and if somebody just looks at the summary of that and so oh, we should all be doing that then
3: yeah and for a lot of people that will you know replicating that diet here will will make them a whole heck of a lot worse because you're you're dealing with almost a different human being because we're so different than a hunter-gatherer society
1: right okay well we're running out of time and we we have like three more shows worth of content to talk about so before we go i want to um, I want you to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the theory of that you know that using the lactate-free probiotics may be beneficial uh, in avoiding to cause uh, an abundance sure. of lactic acid type stuff.
3: Sure, and I, and I think the reason why we're we're low on time is because I've been rambling here probably pretty thoroughly. So well, I Sorry. knew we were
1: I knew we were gonna <laughs> we were gonna not make it through all this because we tend to take all of our shows. I say, it's going to be a short one, and then like three hours later, we're wrapping it up.
3: Right, right, okay. So, um, delactate. So, there, there is this line of thinking or the, this, this issue that's been raised about maybe I should take a delactate-free probiotic because maybe I'm producing too much delactate. And so, delactate is just a metabolic byproduct of some of the bacteria in your gut and it can cause if it if levels are too high right you're, we're all going to have some lactate shouldn't really be an issue and we all have adequate enzyme function to be able to clear delactate. lactate but if for some reason you have too much delactate, lactate that might cause fatigue brain fog headaches weakness pain um, but there are a lot of things that can cause those symptoms so don't think if you have those symptoms it's definitely delactate. lactate because I did. I think I, I read pretty much every study I could get my hands on, on D-lactate. And this only really seems to be an issue or predominantly seems to be an issue in people that have had intestinal surgery. Uh, and it's an intestinal surgery that, that leaves someone with what's called short bowel syndrome.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and they essentially um, excise the, the jejunum or the second part of the small intestine. And what probably happens there is, or what we think happens there is, because you're missing part of your intestines, food that shouldn't, food, food kind of gets to the end of the line too quickly, and that starts to feed bacteria and bacteria overgrowth. So, in people with short bowel syndrome who've had this intestinal surgery, this is a legitimate issue. But for people with normal intestines, really have not seen this to be um, a big issue. Um, okay. People, people that have SIBO, Maybe, but um, you know, I, I've kept an eye on this in my in my SIBO patients because I do use with pretty much all of my SIBO patients a probiotic that produces D lactate and this has helped most patients and not made any of them worse. Yeah, that's what so, I was wondering
2: about.
3: Yeah, so um you know, I, I I've run the D lactate. There's a D lactate test you can do on some patients and I just I haven't found this to be a big issue, but there's a similar issue that I think is noteworthy, and that's histamine. Um, When people make the switch to a more paleo type diet, ancestral type diet, they likely are going to be introducing more fermented foods. And fermented foods can be great, don't get me wrong, but they can also be high in a compound known as histamine. And everyone's a little bit different in how well they can clear histamine. But if histamine levels build up, it can cause brain fog, fatigue. Irritability, it can cause skin problems, insomnia, facial flushing. Huh, yeah. uh, and I actually, even myself, inadvertently, I was eating a lot of histamine foods and started having these issues. And I, I remember I would, it'd just be a normal day, everything's going great, and I'm getting irritated. <laughs> I'm saying, <laughs> what the heck is me? Mean, why am I irritated right now? There's no reason at all for me to be irritated. And I, I thought about it for a minute and I said, I wonder if I'm eating a lot of histamine foods. And spinach is high in histamine, avocado is high in histamine, canned tuna fish is high in histamine. So
1: I must eat a lot of histamine foods when Ken is around. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, right.
3: (laughs) Uh, And and things like kombuchas and uh, fermented sauerkraut or fermented beets or, or, or what have you. And so I was eating lots of these foods and I started to just not... Consume so much of these histamine-rich rich foods, and within a few hours, I just noticed complete turnaround. So, histamine, I think, is something that that is more, much more common for for people than than the uh, delactate issue.
1: Nice.
2: Okay.
0: My stomach's growling. I've got motility.
1: Uh huh. Motility.
0: Yeah. Quite <laughs> go. good. Good job. Moving it through. <laughs>
2: no. I, I've seen a lot of this kind of, I think, pan out with people who were when the body ecology diet came out was really popular. Everyone was eating fermented foods with every meal. Non-stop. And they were all super excited about it for like a week or two. And then like, yeah, I just stopped feeling right. Like something was off. and Maybe that was the histamines in it. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I mean a lot of the foods that are high in histamine are really popular foods when you kind of go on the more paleo-type diet. Uh, I mean avocados, I think that's that's a go-to for a lot of people. So is spinach and so on. Um, sauerkrauts and, and kombuchas are often a drink of choice. So – uh, it can be a real simple fix if if people if you just Google, you know histamine food list or low histamine diet or or something like that, you should be able to get a few food lists that walk you through the high histamine foods and the low histamine foods. And if you're eating a lot of high histamine foods, just try cutting back on those for a while, and you should notice difference within hours to days. Interesting. That was the yeah. issue. Yeah. And you know, Tony, there there was I know you had mentioned two things before. Um, and I know we got to wrap up, but I just, for the listeners that we didn't have a chance to get to these questions, someone asked a question about treating H. pylori, and mm-hmm. someone asked a question about treating Blastocystis hominins. Um, and those are great questions. I've, I've got some great answers for those. If the people who submitted those questions are listening, if they want to go over to my website, they can actually submit a question for us to answer on an upcoming podcast. And oh. I think answering both of those would be a great. Uh, upcoming podcast questions so if you would humor me by submitting those there do you have a you brief will...
1: answer for the H. pylori one
3: um, H. pylori mastica works really well uh-huh. um, but there's there's a few other things in managing H. pylori and, in, and and I think they also want to know about testing and that's a little bit more of a long-winded answer because there's um, three different tests and interpretation of those tests gets a little bit um Uh, messy well
1: let's talk about a couple of the treatment options that seem to be you seem to see success with
3: with h pylori yeah well we we have a herbal um a broad spectrum herbal antimicrobial program that we use for that that works really well and it's it's favored with mastica and we also use n-acetylcysteine and n-acetylcysteine is able to break down the protective layer, also known as a biofilm, that can form over H. pylori. And a study was done where both groups were treated with antibiotic, but one group was t- pre-treated with this antibiofilm agent, N-acetylcysteine, and the other group wasn't. And the group receiving the anacetylcysteine had almost double the clearance rate compared to the non- NAC group. So it's
1: kind of breaking down that protective barrier that the H. pylori build over themselves. Exactly. Right. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. Well, Doc, we're gonna have to have you back on soon and maybe we can talk about some thyroid stuff.
3: Yes, yeah. Maybe we can talk about thyroid and iodine, because that's that's one that there's a lot of uh lot of conflicting opinions and I think we might be able to help people sort through that.
1: Right, and, and don't forget to check out uh, the Doc's new podcast You just on iTunes. You can search for Dr. Ruscio Radio, right? That's us. Yeah, and you can even hear uh, my episode with him. We talked a lot about acid reflux and uh, digestion and weight loss and stuff like that. We had a good time. So check that out. And where else can people find you?
3: Probably the best way to find me is through the website because you can you can get to everything else pretty much through my website, which is just drruscio.com, D-R-U-S r-u-s-c-i-o dot com and uh, you can track me down on all the shenanigans I'm involved in on the internet there
1: yeah there's some shenanigans going on and when you <laughs> listen to the podcast there's a lot of info in there be sure to leave uh, a review like you guys did for us that really helps us spread the word and, and help the podcast get uh, out there more so doc we really appreciate you having us on and, and we're going to have to have you on again if we did not scare you away
3: no, I am. I am game to come back. I'm gonna, I bought the tux for this show, so now I got to use mm-hmm. yeah, it again.
0: Yeah, I got to use that
2: again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks know. a lot. All right, thank you guys. Hi, right, take care.
0: Today, all of our listeners can get a free audiobook from audible.com. Just go to kickitinthenuts.com forward slash audiobook for the details. If you'd like to learn how to become a health coach or even just dig into more advanced teachings for yourself or your family, go to healthprocourse.com to learn about Tony and Will's course for coaches. Registration for this course only opens to the public for about a week at a time, so be sure to register for the coach newsletter so you'll be notified when the next registration opens. You'll find more info at healthprocourse.com.
1: So that's fun having somebody on. that kind of digs into some stuff that we don't talk about a lot. Yeah, and it made me feel like I need to work
2: on my voice. He had such a cool voice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> made me
0: need to work on my vocabulary yeah. and brain. <laughs> my, I was like, wow. My English speaking. Yeah, uh, everything. You know,
2: Dr. Ruscio is awesome. Thank you so much. For yeah, me. Yeah,
1: yeah, so check out you. his stuff at his website, com and his podcast solid. We'll have him on again in a few months, and we'll get into some thyroid stuff with him.
0: And I want to get a tapeworm from you the next time so I can lose some weight. So if you want to learn more about how to look at your own chemistry, you can read any of Tony's books or take the free four-week digestion course at kickitinthenuts.com. Until next time, people.
1: See you later. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.